Good morning. Christ is risen. Well, I want to begin by making an, an admission. I, one of the things we're called to be, I mean, right at the center of our life, in fact, is the call to be thankful. And I think all of us spend all of our lives kind of learning to be as thankful as we should be in the ways that we should be. And for me, that often works like this. I'll have spurts of gratitude, right? They're like explosions of gratitude that suddenly come out of nowhere. And I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to be feeling this all the time. And I had one of those moments this morning in, this, in worship with you. And I realized that I, the first thing I want to say to you is thank you for the way that you've received me and my family. It's been a couple of years now that I've been here as teaching pastor and coming in once a month. And it's astonishing the kind of grace that you've had, that, that Ed and Gail have had, that Brent and Janice have had, that the team that works here, and then all of you have had for me and for my family, for my kids, for my wife. And I'm grateful for that. So thank you for that. I, I love worshiping with you. I mean, the, the, the kind of comfort and kind of refreshing that happens. The only disappointing thing is whenever I come to worship with you, the speaking is always kind of lame. But other than that, this is like a great experience for me. And I, so I hate missing my wife and kids. I mean, I, I, it's best, of course, when they can travel with me. And I miss them when they're not here. But when, when, when we're gathered in worship, especially around the Lord's table at the end of the service every week, New life has awakened in me, so thank you for making space for me. I, I really, really appreciate that. So what I want to do this morning is talk about, by the way, that wasn't some kind of setup for then sharing something disastrous that you'll be more open to. I really, I really am grateful. But I want to talk about the prodigal son story, but I want to begin by reading 1 Corinthians 8 and reflecting for just a moment on what I think Paul is saying there, and then use the prodigal son story to kind of let the seed that is in 1 Corinthians 8 kind of grow up so we can see what what Paul means for us. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 3. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. We don't know for sure, but we're, we're pretty sure that when, this, when Paul says all of us possess knowledge, he's quoting the Corinthians back to themselves. So what's happened behind 1 Corinthians is this church that Paul has planted in Corinth, Paul left, and then they send a letter to Paul asking him questions. And the people who bring the letter tell Paul, this is what's going on at the church there, and here are some issues we need you to speak to. And so he writes a letter back, what we have is 1 Corinthians, that begins with Paul saying, I heard this from the ones who brought me your letter, and I think you need to work on these issues. For one thing, you're divided. Some of you are following Peter, and some of you are following me, and some of you are following Jesus because you're too spiritual to follow any man, right? And so he tells them what he's heard and how he thinks they should respond. But then he gets to their questions, and this is one of their questions. What do we do about the fact that some of us, many of us, are eating meat that has been offered to idols as a sacrifice and then sold at a cheaper rate? How are we to handle that as Christians? And so Paul is addressing it. And what I'm interested in is, is the wisdom in what he said to them, which I think applies even outside of the context of food offered to idols. This is what he says. We know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, if you're like I am, you've heard this phrase used by people trying to safeguard their own ignorance. Right? This is not Paul saying... If you are a head person, you are arrogant, and if you're a heart person, you're built, you build up. This is not some kind of Pauline distinction between knowing and feeling. 
That's not what he means. What he means is there's, there are things we think we know about God and about ourselves and about the world, and we can live in the world confident that we know what we need to know, and that leads to arrogance. Or we can live in the world knowing that there are more important things than what we know and understand yet, and we can live with that kind of humility, and that leads to life and building up. So it's about two kind of orientations. Do you think you already know everything you need to know? Then you will be a person of arrogance who is destructive. Do you think you have much to learn? Then you will be humble, you'll be open, and God can use you and build you. Right? So, I mean, that's the distinction he's making. And then he says this. It's a very odd thing to say. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. So if you're living in the confidence that you understand, you don't really understand. Because real understanding comes with the recognition of, I don't really understand. I mean, do you feel the, the irony here? When you're confident that you know, you don't know. When you're not so sure that you know, you may begin, in fact, to know. Right? And then he turns even that back on them. And he says, but anyone who loves God is known by him. So he shifts from a register of talking about what they know to talking about the fact that they're known. Yes. That what's crucial about you is not what you know, it's what's known about you. I was talking between the services with, with someone who brought to my remembrance something C.S. Lewis said about the most important thing about us is when we're in the presence of God. Not that we know what that presence is, but we know that that presence knows us. Right? This is what Paul is saying. What's important about you is not that you know or what you know, it's what's known about you by the one who knows you. Right? He makes the same move in Galatians. He's writing to the Galatians asking them what led to their fall, what led to their disobedience, and he says... You know God, or wait, better, you're known by God. And you can hear Paul correcting himself, in which he's saying, yes, you know God, but the more important thing is that you're known by God. And there's a way for us to misread this as if he's saying, those of you who love, God notices you, right? If so, you could read this to say, anyone who loves God comes to be known by God. But that's just another form of the very problem he's trying to correct. And you can... Think that what matters is your knowing of God, and then God will notice you because of what you know. Or you can think God will notice you because of your love. But the point Paul is making is God's knowing of you comes before your knowing or your loving. So if in your life you feel that there are times in which your love for God waxes and wanes, you know, there, there are times in which you feel drawn to God, but then in the midst of life with all the trouble that you're experiencing and all the difficulties you're facing, you can feel that love kind of recede or start to get stale or cold, just know that that love that's in you isn't what's going to determine whether or not God knows you. It's God's knowing you that's going to eventually draw you back into his heart, draw you back into intimacy with him. The most important thing about you is that you're known, and that's good news. So this is the seed. Now I want to turn to the story of the, of the two sons and their father and see kind of how that grows up in story form because I think this truth that we can all accept, we can all kind of accede to it, intellectually, we need to see kind of how it works in our lives. So let's turn to the story of the prodigal son. And as you're turning there, Luke, Luke 15, or as you're turning your eyes to the screen when it comes on the screen, let me just say a couple of things about, about the parable. One is this is arguably the most important parable Jesus gave. Now, in a certain sense, everything Jesus said was equally important. I mean, it's Jesus talking, right? But there's something about this parable that is incredibly, especially powerful, and it's gripped the imagination of Christian readers down through the millennia and non-Christian readers. This is, a, this is a parable that has a certain kind of power. And I think part of the power of the parable 
is that somehow these characters bring us to an awareness of something in ourselves. I have three young children, and so the TV I watch these days determines a lot of the illustrations I can make in sermons. So (laughs) that's my way of preparing you for this. These characters, the father and his two sons in particular, are like the Berenstain Bear family. Do you remember the song that they sing at the beginning of the Berenstain Bear show? Right? I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to sing it. Don't beg me because I might do it, right? I'm just kidding. There's no way I would do it. Right? But you could beg me just to make me feel better if you wanted. Right? In the 9 o'clock service, they did beg, right? So that's, those are the kind of comparisons I'm always making. I'm more grateful for the 9 o'clock service than the 11 o'clock service, that kind of thing. Just kidding. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So the Berenstain Bear song says... They're kind of hairy around the torso, but they're a whole lot like people, only more so. Now, obviously, they're trying to rhyme torso and more so, but there's something to, I think there's something to this, right? And it's the TV I watch. I mean, I, I can't go anywhere else for illustrations, right? Maybe when my kids get older, I'll have better illustrations. But I think there's something about these characters that they're characters, and in some ways, they're exaggerated. They're caricatures of people. But something about them draws to our attention what is happening in our real lives. Now, what we have to be careful of is drawing too close a connection between them and ourselves. And I think we often do this when we read biblical stories. We're we're too quick to type ourselves as one of the characters in the story. So we read the story of David and Saul, and David playing his harp and Saul throwing the javelin at him to kill him. And we either see ourselves as David or Saul. But the truth is, at some parts of your life, some of the time, you're David. There are people who are trying to persecute you. And at other times of your life, with other people in your life, you're Saul. You're trying to kill them. So every one of us is somebody else's David and somebody else's Saul. right? And the same applies to every story. Every one of us is an older son at some times and a younger son at other times. And hopefully like the father or like the servant, maybe even like the fatted calf. Who knows? right? But we're at different places at different times depending on what's taking place in our lives. One more caution before I jump into the parable itself. In this parable, which is a parable largely about decision, we have to be careful not to think that all of life comes down to what we choose. There's so much that happens in our lives that's just out of our control. I mean, just, just this week, my best friends in the world, I did his, he and his wife's wedding in November. I did her funeral Wednesday of this week. She died suddenly, went in for a routine procedure, never came out from under the anesthetic. And that's out of anyone's control. It was out of the doctor's control, out of her control, obviously, out of his control, out of all of us who loved him. That's something that happened to them. And if, if we're not careful, sometimes I think we read stories in scripture that are meant to draw attention to, to our agency. And then we draw the line too direct and too tight so that we think everything comes down to our agency. But the truth is, we live in a, in a broken world, and we live in a world in which there are powers against us, and then there's the life of God that's working for us, and there's so much that happens to us that's not about what we choose. So we can find ourselves in the far country, not because we made bad choices necessarily, but because things happened to us. And it's important that as we're talking about choice this morning, you don't feel undue pressure on yourself. But I do think there should be some pressure that even in the midst of all that's happening to me, there is agency that God has given me to decide how to live in the midst of that. 
Right? So I, I want to try to make that nuance. Now, with all that said, let's talk about this parable, which is a parable of self-understanding, decision, and then revelation. In other words, what Paul said about knowing, loving, and being known. Luke chapter 15. I'm a professor, which means the bulk of what I say is introduction, right? <laughs> so it's a lot of introduction and then just a few words, right? That's, that's the peril of my job. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, mark that word, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me, that will belong to me. What he's asking for is his inheritance, or a share of his inheritance. What should be his when his father dies, he wants it now. He doesn't want to wait for the future to come present. He wants it now. Father, give me that share. And notice what the father does. So the father divided his property between them. And I want you to mark this in the story too, that everything this father does in this story has both sons in mind at all points. He's fathering both sons, not just each one of them individually. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. I, I'm, I don't know exactly what to make of the fact that he asks for his inheritance, which is an offense to his father, to say, I want what's going to be mine when you die now. But that he doesn't immediately leave, that he stays for a few days. And I wonder if it's because he's in conflict. That he's deeply conflicted. There's, there's some kind of disruption deep in his soul. Some kind of itch he wants to scratch. And he's afraid that the only way he can scratch this itch is to get away from his dad, away from his brother, away from the farm, away from this country, out there somewhere where he can live his life. The life he wants to live. And yet he recognizes there's something about that that is dangerous and risky. And so he's hesitant. So he's standing at the edge of the pool, not quite sure if he's going to jump in or not. But after a few days of struggling, he jumps in, and he leaves home, he leaves his dad, he leaves his brother, he leaves the family farm, and goes into a distant country, a Gentile land, and wastes everything he has. And notice, all the text tells us is that he squandered what he had, living wildly, riotously. But it doesn't tell us what kind of wild living he had. Just, he lived foolishly and wasted it. And then a famine came, a severe famine, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Now, this translation can kind of obscure something that I think is important. This, the language suggests something more like he joined himself to. So it's not just hiring himself. He's so desperate, he needs someone to replace the father he's left behind. And this is what happens whenever we make foolish choices. We end up trying to find people who can replace the people we've cut out of our lives by that foolishness. And he joins himself to a kind of father surrogate who is a Gentile and has no regard for this Jewish boy's convictions or traditions and sends him into the field to feed the pigs. So here you have the absurdity of a Jewish boy who's asked his father for his inheritance before the time, then left home, lives in a Gentile country, and now is feeding pigs. 
and so desperate that he would eat what he's feeding the pigs if he wasn't afraid the pigs would eat him. And he begs, and no one will feed him. No one has any food to give him. He is at rock bottom, as we would say. And then he comes to himself. And it's precisely at this point, I think, that our misreadings of this story start to take place. Because at least in the versions I've heard, we always use this as a story about sinners who go far into life of darkness and depravity. We're ready with our, to fill in with our imaginations all of what riotous living meant. And that, he, that he's far from God, but then he repents. He comes to himself. But I want you to see that's not actually the way the story works. He's in the far country. He's in incredible need. So desperate, he's willing to eat the pig slop. He's willing to eat the husks from what he's feeding them. And he has this realization. I've made some bad choices. And that's a realization, but it's not revelation. And there's a distinction here that I I think we need to hold. It's one thing to realize I've made a mess of my life. It's another thing altogether to realize I'm known by my father and loved. Because notice what the realization leads him to say. He came to himself and said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father. Notice how many times he calls him father. Over and over and over again. I will go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And you realize that even though he's had a realization of the foolishness of his own ways, he still sees his father in the same way. His view of his father hasn't changed at all. Because in in a very real sense, the, the prodigal goes through four stages of awareness. The fourth stage, the stage that the story wants us to be carried to, is the stage of revelation. He knows his father And he knows how his father knows him. But he begins in sheer childish selfishness. He looks at his father and all he sees is someone who's useful. So when he's at home and that itch is deep in his soul, he looks at his father and he says, there's the one who has what I need to live the life I want to live. He's useful for me. And I don't want to wait until the time to get what he has for me. I want it now. And what the prodigal does is in that moment he chooses the present and cuts himself off from the past and the future. The prodigal is living in that far country as someone who has no past. He's burned all those bridges and he has no future. He's not saving some of this to give to his children when they are ready for inheritance. He's not preparing to invest in the future. He's living for this moment. He's giving no thought for yesterday and no thought for tomorrow. And then he becomes so needy he rediscovers My father is useful. My father is useful. This, by the way, is why he joined himself to that man in the far country. He was looking for someone who was useful. And when you're a child, that's entirely appropriate. I mean, as children, we all kind of, at that stage of development, we see our parents as useful. We're hungry. Feed us. I'm cold. Put a coat on me. And at a certain point of our development, it is entirely appropriate to recognize our parents as useful. But when, that, when we remain in that way of seeing them, even when we've come into early adulthood, that's when we start to abuse their care for us. And what's happened with this prodigal is that he's never outgrown that childish selfishness that was there. And he still sees his father as useful. And even when he comes to realize his own mistakes and he's ready to go home, he's only going home because he knows the father is useful. How many people, this is their relationship to God? 
They've had the realization that their life is a mess and they turn back to God, but not because they've had a revelation of the Father's heart, just because they know there's a need that only that can supply. But it's still about usefulness. It's still childish understanding. Right? So he says, I'm going to go to the Father's house and I'm going to say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And one of the powers of this parable is that it understands self-talk. The ways in which human life is a life we live, human life is a life that's lived not with what happens to us, but what we're saying to ourselves about what's happening to us. Whatever we're experiencing, we're experiencing it through self-talk. Everything that happens to you, there's this internal dialogue, a script. Something bad happens to you, and you say to yourself, not again. I knew it was going to happen. This always happens to me. Why does this only happen to me? This self-talk, right, that reveals what we think we know about ourselves and about God and about how to live in the world, what kind of life to make for ourselves. And when this son comes to rock bottom and he has the realization, the script we hear is a script that shows us that he doesn't see his father as father. He doesn't understand himself as son. He sees his father as useful, as a master, and he sees himself as a servant, as needy. Now, before he went to the far country, he had the same childish understanding. He thought the father was useful, and he thought that the father could serve his needs. Now he's come to realize, no, I'm going to be the servant. He's going to be the master. But there's not really yet awareness of his father's love. And so he comes home. I love this part of the story. He comes home, and while he's still afar off, the father sees him and is filled with compassion. He runs and puts his arm around, arms around him and kisses him. And we often tell this story as if this is the moment of revelation, right? That finally the father sees the son, rushes and embraces him and kisses him and dances around him and sings over him and that the son realizes I'm loved. But notice that's not what the story says. So here's the moment. The prodigal has come home. He, he must look a mess and emaciated, shamed, his eyes downcast, shuffling along barefooted without a robe, his ribs showing. I mean, he's, he looks awful. I mean, the father sees him and his guts turn. That's what it means to say he had compassion. The father sees him and something in him revolts and he runs to him and he grabs him. And while the father is pouring out love on him, the son is pushing away trying to get to the speech. Because even when he's in that embrace, what's going on in the son's heart is still his understanding, his knowledge about who he is and who the father is. And how many of us have been in the Father's embrace, are now in the Father's embrace, and he's singing over us and dancing around us and rejoicing, but what we feel is, let me get my speech out. Let me say, I'm not worthy. Let me say, I'm not your son. I'll be a servant. I'll sleep in the barn. Because the truth is, it's not enough for God to love us. We have to come to a revelation that God loves us. That awareness has to set into our bones and alter us completely. And so the, the son is trying to get his speech out. And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I love, I love, I love what the father does here. The father says to the slaves, quick, bring out a robe, the best one, probably the father's. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What I love about this is the father's embracing the son. He's, 
rejoicing over him, delighted in his return, and he recognizes the son doesn't believe him. And so he doesn't even argue. He just turns and says, get the ring, get the robe, bring me some sandals, kill the calf, let's party. My son is home. And so even though all the way through this part of the story, the prodigal calls his father, father, he still doesn't know him as father. But when the father calls him son, he knows him as son. What you think you know, you don't really know. How you're known is what matters. And so the prodigal is taken into a party. And I'm, I'm willing to bet it was a great party. I mean, a first-rate kind of party. A Christian party, but a great party. <laughs> but if you've ever been, if you've ever really been ashamed of yourself, you know it takes a while to shift out of shame into being lost in the moment of joy. And so I imagine the party was raging around him, a Christian party, raging around him. They're singing, there's dancing, we know, but it's praise and worship music, I'm sure. <laughs> and I don't know what they were drinking, but I'm pro- it's probably grape juice, but at some point... After a few drinks of grape juice and a few songs, the prodigal starts to feel, maybe, maybe, I am a son. Maybe. Maybe this ring and this robe and these sandals aren't just dress up. Maybe I'm not a servant dressed up as a son. Maybe I really am a son. And so much of our life as Christians, whether we realize it or not, is like that. We hear the word of God spoken over us, and we hear it, and we nod, and we agree, but in our guts, in our bones, we wonder, is this dress up? Am I really a servant who's been given a robe and given a ring, or am I really a son? And I want you to know that's normal. It's normal for the party to be going on around you and you to wonder, can I really dance? I mean, you do the, you know, the kind of awkwardness, and then you decide, no, wait, I don't think I can do that, Right? You're not sure you can really sing full-throated. You can't just leap into the moment because you don't know for sure that you are who they say you are. I think many of us, maybe most of us, maybe all of us, have at the seed of our soul, at the very root of who we are, a fear that God is not as good as people say he is and that we're not as loved as we say we are. And even when we're saying the right thing, I think there's somewhere in us, I I know this is true about me, there's somewhere in me, really deep, that wonders, is God really that good? Am I really that loved? It's sort of like this for me. You know, I fly fairly often, and I'm not afraid of flying. I know that flying is much safer than driving a car or riding a bike, for instance, or skateboard especially if I'm the one on the skateboard or the bike or driving the car. But there are times in which the plane is taking off and I look out the window and I see the ground falling away beneath me and there's this fear that rises up inside of me. Now, I never have that fear when I'm driving a car. I bet other people around me do. I don't have that fear, right? But the truth is I'm much more at risk in a car than I am on a plane. But my fear when I'm in a plane is something else altogether different. It's not always there. But every once in a while, when I think I, when I've not forgotten about, thought about it at all, suddenly, and I think our life with God is like that. At least mine is. There are times where I mean, I'm teaching class and I'm preaching sermons and I'm giving counsel, and then suddenly 
some, my stomach will turn. Is God really this good? Am I really this loved? And what happens is the prodigal gets taken into the party, and the party just keeps going until he can ease into it. Now let's talk about the elder son before I stop. So all of this is plain, and in some ways you reach the climax of the story. The prodigal's home, he's partying, drinking his grape juice, singing praise and worship, having a good time. But the elder son is in the field. The elder son is in the field, and he comes home after working late, and he hears a party. And notice what the text says. He heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. So I want you to think of it like this. The prodigal was all present with no past and no future. The elder son is all past and future and no present. The prodigal leapt right into the middle of life with both feet. He was going to live burning the candle at both ends. The elder son won't live at all because he doesn't want to get it wrong. The prodigal is not worried about getting it wrong. He doesn't care whether he gets it right or wrong. The elder son is afraid to do anything because it might go wrong. What if he loses a connection to the past? What if he loses a future? And either way, it's unfaithful. And the truth is, as I said at the beginning, all of us are at different parts of our life making one or the other of those mistakes. We're either leaping in where prudence is required or we're standing back, halting, waiting to act because we're afraid we'll get it wrong. And so the elder son is so afraid, he won't even walk up to the party himself. He asks the servant, what's happening over there? And the servant says, your brother has come home. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Then the older brother became angry and refused to go in. What is this anger? This is, this is the way I want you to think about it. For the younger son, his realization, his turn back to the father happened in desperate need. But for some of us, our turn back to the father will only happen when something makes us angry. And that's what happens for him. He is infuriated. What? You're doing what? You're having a party? I don't care if it's Christian music. You're having a party? <laughs> right? And his father comes out, the text says, to plead with him. Now I'm going to make another admission. This story used to disturb me. Because I, I you know, universally when people talk about this story, they talk about the father in this story as being like our father God, as I'm doing today. And for a long time, I resisted that and said, this father is just a silly old fool. Because what kind of father gives the son the inheritance when he knows he's going to waste it? What kind of father lets the son go into the far country and then just waits for him to come back? I mean, if he's like God, wouldn't he go to the far country and get him? And then what kind of father doesn't throw a party for the son who stays and then after having not gone to the far country to get his son, leaves the party he's throwing for the son who comes home to go out and console a pouting brother. This just seemed foolish to me. But I think there is a wisdom here, and I think this father is actually like God. You just have to see the timing. I think there are times in, 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 in a stage of our development where God says no to us. I'm not giving you that gift, because if I were to give it to you, you would destroy yourself. But there's another part of our development in which God says, 
of that same gift, it's time. Even if you're grasping for it and you're not ready, he recognizes the only way you're going to learn to be a son and not just a child, the only way you're going to learn to be a, an adult in, in my life, in, in your life, is to take this responsibility. And so he gives it. He gives it to both of them. And the reason he comes out in this moment to see the elder son, to beg him to come into the party, is because the father knows that the elder son is actually at much greater risk than the younger son ever was. And this is the truth that's hard for those of us who consider ourselves kind of good Christians to recognize. That being in the field is far more dangerous than being in the far country. It's when you're near to the Father's house without knowing the Father's heart that you're most at risk. Because it's so easy to confuse being near the Father's house with being aware of the Father's heart. It's so easy to confuse doing the work in the field for the Father as being the son of the Father. And that's what's happened to this elder son. He's close to the Father in one way, but he's much further from the Father than the younger son ever was. Because think of it like this. What the Father wants for those boys is for them to become fathers themselves. He wants them to grow up into the freedom he knows as their father. He gives them their inheritance because he wants them to be able to hold that inheritance, and live with that inheritance wisely. And he knows it's a risk, but the younger son at least knows the father wants me to have this. The father means for me to have these gifts. He misreads them. He is selfish and childish about it, but he does recognize my father wants to give me gifts. The older son doesn't even know that about his father. The older son thinks it's all investment. And I think there are a lot of us who think God's work in our life is just investment. That everything he gives us is because he wants a payoff. I mean, think about the way we talk about freedom. When we tell the story, some version like this, that God created human beings free because God wanted to be loved by people who are free, not robots. And so he gave us freedom so that when we come to him and we love him, then he would see that we really love him. You realize how perverse that is? That's just investment. That's just, in, that's just God giving you something that he wants you to use in a certain way for his satisfaction. But that's not who God is. God is gift. God is not an investor in your life. God is your father. He gives the gifts he gives to you because he wants you to have the gifts. He gives you instructions. He, he lays down rules because he wants to teach you how to use the gift for your fullness of life, not because he's looking for the greatest payback. And I think there are so many of us, maybe, who we know that, but we don't know that. And whenever God is working in our life and all the, all the gifts and privileges that God gives us, there's still something in our guts and our bones that thinks this is investment, it's not a gift. And this elder son, I want you to look at what he says. The father comes out and he screams at his dad, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you. And now we know what he thinks he knows. He, too, sees this as a master-slave relationship, just like the younger brother did. Only in this case, it's even more perverse. I've been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when, mark this, this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, pause for just a moment, footnote. Again, I'm a professor, I can't help myself. The text didn't tell us that he wasted his money on prostitutes. He's supplying this. Now, he's doing it either because this is the gossip or because he wants to wound his father deeply by saying, your son not only went into Gentile lands, he coupled with Gentile prostitutes. Or it's because that's what he would do if he had been brave enough to live in the moment. (laughs) Regardless, he is insert, he's suggesting this is how your son wasted the money. Your son. And one of the things I want, I want us to see here is that whenever you're living close to the father's house, but you don't know the father's heart, you also can't know your brothers and sisters. Your heart is turned against them. You become suspicious of them as well. And remember what I told you. The father is always working not only with each son, but for both sons. And notice how the father responds. Then the father said to him, son, Now, what we've seen in all of this story is every time the boys say his name, Father, they don't know what they're talking about. But the good news is, when the Father says our name, Son, he knows what he's talking about. And so he says, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And here's here's what the father is saying to him. Son, listen. My other boy, your brother, he lived in the moment and he thought he had lost his past and his future. And what he's discovered today is that he has a past and a future because I love him. Not because of the way he lived, not because he earned it. He has a past and a future because he's my son. And God says that over all of us. You have a past and you have a future no matter how you're living right now. Because there is a father who knows you and loves you. He creates your past and your future. And then to the elder son, he's saying, and you won't live in the present, but I'm inviting you into the present. Stop worrying about the past you can make for yourself and the future you can make for yourself. Come into the party. You're my son, and that's your brother. So to us, God says, wherever we happen to be, whether we're all eaten up in the present and we're afraid we've lost our past and the future or we're afraid to step into the present because we're only concerned about the past and the future, God says, those are mine. I am present in your past, I am present in your future, and I'm present to you now. Don't try to create your own past and your future. That's me. That's my work. Just be here. Herbert McCabe, who was one of the great preachers of the previous generation, said this about the root of all sin. Most of us, and I think McCabe is right about this, most of us think the root of all sin as pride and rebellion. We think that the reason people resist God and flee from God and become hard against God is because they're selfish and angry against God and rebellious. But I think McCabe is right. The root of all sin is fear. The very deep fear that we are nothing. The compulsion, therefore, to make something of ourselves. And we can do that in various ways. We can do it by going into the far country and living wildly, or we can do that by staying at home and working in the field. But what's behind both of those boys' knowledge is fear. 
fear that they're not sons. They're just servants. I think that all sins, McCabe says, are failures in being realistic. They're failures in being realistic. Even the simple everyday sins of the flesh have their deepest origin in anxiety about whether we really matter. The anxiety that makes us desperate for self-reassurance. And whether that looks like the prodigal wasting everything he has, flying moment to moment hedonistically, or it looks like the elder son counting all of his pennies, waiting for the day when he can start to live, both of them are eaten up with anxiety about whether or not they matter, who they are, and whose they are. And many of us have learned this lesson once already, but we have to learn it again and again and again. That that anxiety that rises up in us is a lie. That, that, that fear that's at the root of us is a lie. To sin, McCabe says, is to construct an illusory self that we can admire instead of the real self that we can only love because it is loved. I wonder how much of what we do is reaching out to create something admirable because we don't really know that we're loved. And this is what we're about to do. We're about to come to a table, to the table, where the Father says over each of us, this is all you really need to know. You're my son, you're my daughter, and this is your brother, and this is your sister. I'm going to end with this, if you'll stand with me. Again, I think there are plenty of people in this room, I certainly am one of them, that at some level we know this. But there's at some deeper, more intuitive, subconscious level, we're afraid that what we've convinced ourselves of is not really reliable, that we can't really lean on it. And here's how I think we know that. Because the Father's relation to to time, the, the freedom he's willing to give us in time is something that creates vertigo in us. There's, there are so many times in my life, so many times, in which I, can, I suddenly come aware of the fact that I feel what I think is God's impatience. Because I think a lot of us, again, it's deeply imprinted in us. We say that God is patient, but what we feel is this pressing expectation of, I've given this to you, I'm waiting on the payback. And whenever we feel like God is impatient with us, it's because we're believing that we're servants and not sons. Because the Father is in no hurry. He's in no hurry. He knows your future. He's in no hurry. And whenever that impatience starts to work on you and you start to feel it rotting you inside, just that's a lie. You're not a servant. You're a child. And he will wait as long as he needs to wait. He's in no hurry. All he wants is for you and for me to step into the moment knowing he has our past and he has our future. And all he wants from us is to know we are sons and to know those are our brothers and to be thankful that he's our father. That's all we need to know. We don't need to know our way there or love our way there. We don't need to work our way there. We don't need to find some way to perform so that we satisfy those expectations. We just need to come to these moments, center ourselves, and recognize the only thing that really matters 
is that there are, there's a father who knows me. And his word to me is, you're my son. This is your brother. Let's eat. That's all. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.